They hunger like the wolf by Simon John Charles Le Bon, Nicholas James Bates, and the brothers Taylor. No relation. <clears throat> Dark in the city. Night is a wire. Steam in the subway. Earth is a fire. Do do do. 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 Woman, you want me. Give me a sign. And catch my breathing even closer behind. Do do do, do do do, do do do, do do do, do do do. In touch with the ground, I'm on the hunt. I'm after you. Smell like I sound. I'm lost in a crowd, and I've hunger, like the wolf. Straddle the line. In Discord and rhyme. Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. We are on both Twitter and Instagram at Discord Pod, and you can find show notes and our full episode archive at discordpod.com. And subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are streamed. I am Amanda Rogers. Rich Bennell. Phil Maddox. And back by popular demand, Libby Cudmore. Woo! <laughs> That's right. Libby has been on our podcast before. She uh, hung out with us to talk about the B-52s a while back, and we loved her so much we made her come back again. Yes, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming again. She has two podcasts of her very own, the OST Party and the Shattered Shield, uh, which you should listen to because they're both awesome. Mm -hmm. And she's also the founder and curator of Hashtag Record Saturday on Twitter. Come join us every Saturday. We listen to a record. It's fun. It's very fun. All right, this is our holiday episode, but Rich has stolen Christmas That's right. and has an album for us this week. What album are we talking about, Rich? It's time. It's finally time. We're doing Duran Duran's Rio. Woo! All right. Why this album and why now? Well, we're doing it for the holiday episode because this episode is my Christmas present to myself. <laughs> We've been going through our favorite albums of all time lately, or at least some of us have. Like, Will went through Yola Tango's I Can Hear the Heart Beating as one, and Amanda went through the Moody Blues's To Our Children's Children's Children. Uh, Rio is my favorite album of all time and has a shorter, much more efficient name. Three letters. Beat that. <laughs> I can't argue with that. What's its relationship to Henry Cow and the Rockin' Opposition Movement? I'll stop <laughs> now. <laughs> Okay, Rich, what is your personal history with Rio? How did it come to be your favorite album of all time? Oh, Rio and I go way, way back. This is primordial. Just damn primordial. So 
Awesome. In 1997, I'm pretty sure I was the youngest known Duran Duran fan, or at least a statistical outlier. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely one of the only people who got into them through their album Medazzaland, uh, which features only two of the original band members, is almost comically uncommercial, and crashed and burned so spectacularly on the charts that their label dropped them. Uh, it's best known for the <laughs> single Electric Barbarella, which had a really, really sexist fembot-themed video, which I don't recommend watching, mm-hmm. but the song is pretty good. Well, obviously, I'm going to go watch it now. So I first learned about Duran Duran because the glittery videos for Hungry Like the Wolf and Rio were featured on, once again, VH1's pop-up video. Pop Woo! into it. Yeah, we only talk about pop-up video when you're here, Libby. I'm the pop-up video maven. <laughs> Bring it back, I say. We should do a pop-up video podcast. Yeah. Oh, that'd be so fun. Yeah, but how would that even work? It should be a video <laughs> podcast where we pop up our own facts <laughs> over pop-up video. This basically is the pop-up video podcast. That's true. I think we established that last time around. So I picked up on Duran Duran's reputation, and in the gloomy 90s, I knew that they were supposed to be lame, but something didn't make sense because these songs were amazing. So I somewhat meekly picked up their compilation Decade, and it quickly became one of my most played CDs. And so I was one of the few to buy Medazzalam when it came out that fall. Uh, I believe it was on release day, actually. I went to the store on release day and I bought like an album that nobody else bought. And the rest of their catalog followed as allowance money, holidays and birthdays would allow. So when I got into Duran Duran, most of their fans had just hauled ass after their disastrous 1995 covers album. Thank you. Not nearly as bad as people say it is, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It does have a very like ill-considered cover of 911 as a joke on it, though. Yikes. Oh, dear. They didn't think about that one. Uh, So among my age group, listening to Duran Duran's albums felt like exploring a derelict vessel or, say, like abandoned (laughs) Second Life world. (laughs) Someone in high school asked what I was listening to once on my headphones and then got an earful of I don't want your love. And he practically recoiled in terror, asking me if it was New Kids on the Block. So I actually saw them in concert in December 1997 at San Jose State University, and the already mid-sized venue was maybe half full. It was fun, but it was kind of sad. Uh, but, But since then, Nostalgia, the synth revival, and a really successful reunion album and tour have swelled the band's audiences and bank accounts again. But for a few years, it felt like this band was mine. And that's something I've never felt and can never feel about a band again. Aww. But how about you guys? Uh, Libby, why don't you start? Okay. Um, Duran Duran was always one of those bands I sort of knew existed in the sort of wall of sound 80s generic like this is what the 80s sound like so I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to them until I actually got my hands on a a sampler CD that had playing with uranium from pop trash Come on over, my 
I was not expecting pop trash to come up this early in the episode. Yeah. So, and I really, I really liked that. And then at an 80s night at Binghamton University, I won a 80s costume contest because that's just how I dress. What was the costume? I need to know. It was just kind of a Cindy Lauper esque outfit because that's how I dressed in 2004. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yes. Well, thank you. And I won, again, another compilation CD that had Hungry Like the Wolf on it. But I really got into this album in 2009. My friend Matthew and I would drive up to grad school together. We went to the University of Southern Maine. It was a low residency program. And somehow Duran Duran had come up in conversation. And I we both really got like re-obsessed with this album and would play it just on repeat. And especially when we were in uh, Chicago at the AWP conference, there's a lot of songs from this album that are very like linked to that. And I'll get into that a little a little later. But since then, I have it on vinyl. Um, I have a 45 that was on a jukebox at the teen center where my husband works. And oh, wow. Yeah. And Hungry Like the Wolf is actually the song we have played the most on Record Saturday. We played it on Rio. We played it on a Jukebox Heroes episode where we played a bunch of 45s. And then it appeared on a New Wave uh, album that we had. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So it just keeps coming up. All right, Phil, how about you? So Duran Duran were a band that just kept on randomly coming up in my life until I realized that I loved them. <laughs> so they'll do that. When I was a teenager, like like a lot of guys back then, I was like, oh, I don't like, you know, this girly kind of music or whatever. But I always loved Hungry Like the Wolf. I thought that was a great song. And a lot of people treated Duran Duran like they were some kind of, you know, boy band thing or whatever, which, by the way, I've also gotten over my thing about like boy bands because there's a lot of great like Backstreet Boys songs or whatever. But anyway, okay, you're wrong, but <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And and here's the thing, Phil, never trust anyone who claims they don't like Hungry Like the Wolf. Yeah, exactly. they're liars. Yeah. So I like that song enough that I have finally swallowed my pride. I special ordered a copy of Rio from a local record store because I was never a greatest hits person. I'm like, no, give me the album. So I got Rio and I listened to it a bunch and really liked it. But then I kind of forgot about it. And then cut to a couple of years later, on literally my 18th birthday, I was at an anime convention, which is how you know I'm a very cool person. <laughs> and there was a panel that was about, quote, anime music videos. Yeah, I mentioned this, this before. And they made a somebody made a video from using footage from the show Ronmo One Half to the Duran Duran song from their debut, Girls on Film. I feel like I've probably seen this. This was probably in the early 2000s, wasn't it? 2001. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, no, Phil, you told this same story, but it was about one of the songs on Nuggets. Yeah, it was about Are You a Boy or Are You a Girl? Yes, like this showed up there <laughs> that was too. Also Ronmo One These Half. are the two songs I mostly remember from it. That's amazing. <laughs> We could just, Phil, you and me could do a podcast just on anime music videos. They were clearly <laughs> crucial to both our existences. So so then I bought the Duran Duran debut album because I liked that song so much. And I listened to that a ton of times. And I now I had, you know, the debut and I had Rio. And then cut to about a year later, I'm in college. And I got really into Dance Dance Revolution where one of the songs that I kept on hearing was a dance remix of Ordinary World. Oh, God. <laughs> but I won't cry yesterday. 
<laughs> I was not expecting that to be the song. No. Have you guys heard the dance remix of Fast Car by Tracy Chapman? Yes. And no. you're like, who thought, yes, this is a song people want to dance to? That's a good idea. So then, oh then I gosh. ended up buying, you know, Duran Duran's second self-titled album, a.k.a. The Wedding Album, and I liked it a lot. And at that point, I'm like, three different times Duran Duran has come up and I've bought one of their albums and loved it. Do I love Duran <laughs> Duran? I think I do. And then I ended up eventually just getting all of their albums. I'm still missing one. But I have every other Duran Duran album and just realized I love this mm-hmm. band and I still do. Which one is missing? I do not have Big Thing. It's okay. That's my review of Big Thing. <laughs> okay. Well, we're not doing a Big Thing episode. No. Not related to XTC's Pink Thing. Well, you know, as I often am on our episodes, I'm the one who doesn't really have a history with this band, uh, besides the same history that everyone who was alive in the 80s has, which is liking all their radio hits. And I own a few of their songs on various 80s compilations that I've picked up over the years, but I never bothered to look into their actual albums um, until preparing for this episode. And I was very surprised and delighted to learn that they're not just a singles act. So this has been really great fun for me. Yeah, this is a solidly good album, like start to finish. Some of their other ones, I'm like, meh, there's a handful of songs, but this one, there's not a weak track on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll discuss later, Duran Duran, later. There's there's some good stuff, but they never hit this peak again. Mm-hmm. So if this is their peak, you know, how, do, how did they get to this peak and what happened after? What's the history of Duran Duran, Rich? All right, let's hit it. So a lot of the info for this episode comes from three sources, Uh, a biography by Neil Gaiman, of all people, that Amanda forwarded to me. Thank you, Amanda. No problem. (laughs) Yeah, I I think he disowned it. In fact, he'd probably be angry to know that I sourced it. Well, I think for a long time he pretended that it never happened because it was his first published book. But then probably somewhere between five and ten years ago, I bought it as part of a Humble Bundle where he released a whole bunch of his old writing that had never been put out before. And that that was pretty fun. It's pretty good. It's not as good as Good Omens, but, you know. Sandman was about Duran <laughs> Duran, right? Better than anything a stupid wife ever did. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> so the second source is an excellent BBC documentary on the making of the album. I'll put that in the show notes. And also countless, countless forum posts obsessing over the synth sounds on this album. Rio is a really personal favorite of mine, but it didn't really occur to me before starting research exactly how popular this album was. Mm-hmm. It was huge, but it's it's built up a legendary status over the years. So, like I said, this band was mine, and I was shocked to discover that people used to love them. That's kind of how I felt about the Smiths. Like, whoa, I'm not the only person who likes this album? That's weird. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really the only time that bands can be yours. Uh, so, Duran Duran. They were formed in 1978 in Birmingham, a working-class city in England's West Midlands County that Gaiman wrote was notable mostly for its flat, brummy accent, its complex of motorways, and its, quote, rather ghastly blue and cream-colored double-decker buses. I think you mean rather ghastly. Oh, sorry, rather ghastly. <laughs> but also a significant youth population and a diverse and vibrant musical culture. That's where Black Sabbath are from. That's where the Moody Blues are from. And Black Sabbath is playing at a really shitty venue in uh, Albany. 
and my friend Marvin's ba- band is opening for them. Ooh, nice. Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations, Marvin. Yeah, way to go, Marvin. You're a good dude. <laughs> he really is. Go, Marvin. So, Birmingham native Nicholas James Bates stepped into this musical culture when he dropped out of school at 16, went on the dole, took the name Nick Rhodes for, quote, aesthetic reasons, and taught himself to play the synthesizers. Did he name himself after the Fender Rhodes? Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> that's the only quote I was able to get out of him personally, you know, with all my badgering. <laughs> <laughs> Rhodes' friend John Taylor, who lived just down the street from him, he dropped out of art school, joined him on the dole, and the two set out to form a band. Hi ho, hi ho. So, the earliest incarnation of the band consisted of Rhodes, backed by Taylor on guitar, Steve Duffy on vocals and bass, and Simon Colley on clarinet, interestingly enough. Huh. Uh, yeah, Taylor dismissed this early lineup as a joke, saying, quote, We were really on a bit of an art school trip at the time. Uh, so while the band auditioned various vocalists and musicians, they routinely would play at the hip local Rum Runner nightclub, whose owners, Paul and Michael Barrow, became the band's managers. Uh, so the band took inspiration for their name from another local club called Barbarella's, named after the 1968 Jane Fonda sci-fi film Barbarella, whose villain is named Durand Durand, with D's on the end. So Rhodes and Taylor either misheard the name or just thought Durand Durand sounded better, which is true. Either way, that's the name of the band. So through some ads and chance encounters, Taylor and Rhodes assembled the classic five-piece Duran Duran lineup, whose names will be accompanied by Neil Gaiman's description of each of them. First, we have the founding duo of Nick Rhodes on synths, who, quote, enjoys being and working in a studio and taking photographs. And John Taylor on bass, quote, the glamorous one, fascinated by the tinsel and glitter of the high life. From there, they went on to hire two more completely unrelated tailors, a feat to my knowledge unduplicated until They Might Be Giants recruited their three-piece band of Dans in the late 90s. So they met drummer Roger Taylor at a Birmingham party, and he is, quote, quiet, ostentatious, the most down-to-earth member of the band. His nickname was apparently Froggy Barnacle within the group for reasons unknown. <laughs> I don't want to know. That would ruin the mystery. Mm-hmm. That also, mystique. I just want to mention that Boston had two different drummers named Fran. <laughs> Which is along these same lines. Was Fran Drescher ever a member of the band? Mm, not to my knowledge, but we should look into that. Uh, she sang Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> so, and finally, they recruited their vocalist after hundreds of auditions for singers came up short, and rum runner bartender Fiona Kemp suggested her ex boyfriend, Simon LeBon. Gaiman describes him as, quote, the good-looking vocalist, lyricist, and frequent frontman, and an early article about him listed his hobbies as, quote, painting, music, writing poetry, and the study of heraldry. And the study of models. Every time oh I hear goodness. his name, I just hear it in the sound of Mike Dowdy. Simon Le Bon, Simon Le Bon. <laughs> <laughs> not our first super Bon Bon it's reference not. on this show. <laughs> I was just thinking that, too. So the band got its break opening for singer Hazel O'Connor, and it didn't come cheap with Michael Barrow actually mortgaging his flat to buy the band onto the tour. But it was apparently the best 15,000 pounds he ever spent, quote, because after the tour, labels were just falling over themselves to sign them. So Duran Duran eventually went with EMI, a major label that had signed Kraftwerk, Kate Bush, Olivia Newton-John, and Queen, (laughs) and they released their self-titled debut in 1981. They attracted some controversy with the raunchy wrestling video for their number five UK single, Girls on Film, directed by Kevin Godley and LOL Cream, formerly of 10CC. It's actually LOL Cream. I just like I just wanted to say that (laughs) it it was followed by the number 14 UK single Planet Earth, which I sing literally anytime anyone says Planet Earth in any situation, much to my wife's chagrin.
episode, The Debut, was produced by Colin Thurston, who had worked with Iggy Pop and David Bowie, and he went on to produce the band's 1982 follow-up and subject of today's episode, Rio. So the debut had done well in the UK, but failed to crack the US charts. But in a choice that proved to be pivotal, EMI sent the band to Sri Lanka and Antigua to film a series of exotic music videos, apparently for a video disc that the label ultimately scrapped. It's interesting seeing like these, like what they thought music videos were going to, like the direction they thought they were going to go in. Video disc. I don't yeah, even know video what that discs. Is. <laughs> Apparently they didn't either. So while the band was touring Rio, they learned that the video for Hungry Like the Wolf had taken off on MTV, which was just exploding in popularity at that particular point. This broke the band in the U.S. And from then on, the band and their videos were pretty much permanently associated. So Duran Duran had built a reputation for that reason as, quote, a haircut band, which is a charge that you heard often in the early MTV era. And my goal with this episode is to argue that this reputation is just bad publicity and, in fact, often just really aggressively awful publicity and that Rio is both musically sophisticated and artistically triumphant. It rules. I love it. This episode is basically my thesis on why I love music, and that's what I hope to convey today. No biggie. (laughs) So that seems pretty basic. I will state that. I had heard about their reputation in that way, but even when I was like a teenager who was kind of prejudiced against this kind of music, I have still to this day never actually seen a Duran Duran music video. I don't think I have either. I have vague memories of uh, View to a Kill, which I also just played on record Saturday, but it, it might be a fever dream. I don't know. I haven't gone back and watched any any of the videos. The only one I know I saw as a kid on MTV was the one for the song Rio, because that one was on just constantly, even, you know, when I was like eight or nine or 10, which is in the late 80s. That lasted a long time. Yeah, I think I primarily saw the ones for Hungry Like the Wolf and Rio. And like I said, mostly through pop-up video. I I think it's a case of like, if you were there when they came out, the, you knew them because of their videos. Yeah, because mm-hmm. again, when I think of Duran Duran and music videos. I think of Akane from Ranma One Half taking <laughs> photographs, and I'm pretty sure that is not an official Duran Duran music video. This is so oh, dorky. Finally. I love this. I feel like vindicated somehow. <laughs> well, anyhow, we have lots of time to talk about the videos, so let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and get into the album. Hey everyone, we just wanted to wish you happy holidays and happy new year from Discord and Rhyme. So this is the end of our second calendar year and we've kind of sort of built an audience, which is exciting. Um, And we have some really just kind of bazonkers albums planned for 2020. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm excited for a lot of these. And since we've been awesome this year, we're going to ask for a few stocking stuffers. We would love it if you gave us a rating and especially if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or any other service with ratings and reviews. And we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash discord pod with some cool perks. Uh, So like, what do we have for our $3 tier, Amanda? Exclusive bonus episodes that you won't find anywhere else not available in stores yeah amanda and i have already recorded an episode on garbages version 2.0 and uh, we have some other stuff planned in the future and if any of you really enjoyed our holiday episode from last year and would like more holiday song recommendations from your pals at discord and rhyme go to discordpod.com blog and you will find this year's playlist and with that back to rio Okay, we're back. So let's get into this album that Rich claims is so awesome with track one, the title track, Rio. Are y'all ready? Because here we go. 
Rio feels like a sparkling jet setting experience, wholly unique to itself. But like with most music, when you dig deep enough, it's built from influences and some spare parts. So one of Duran Duran's early vocalists during their like revolving door audition period, uh, he was a lad by the name of Andy Wicket, unrelated to Wicket from Return of the Jedi. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but what about Yupnup? <laughs> Yupnup. And Rio is weirdly fixated on lifting from songs featuring him. The verse is inspired by the early 1979 Duran Duran demo, See Me, Repeat Me. Not see mm-hmm. me, feel me. You beat me to it. I was waiting for that. <laughs> Why don't you just do that again? Oh, oh yeah. Yep. But you shouldn't huh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it's kind of Joy Division-y. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the chorus is inspired by the song Stevie's Radio Station uh, by Birmingham band TVI, which is also sung by Wicked. Yeah, that chord progression is the same, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's just like little bits and pieces. Uh, but this is also a good excuse to talk about Duran Duran's influences and how they blend together. Uh, so the interplay between all three of the Taylors is directly inspired by the band Chic who can best be described as disco by negative space. And by that, I mean that Niall Rogers' rhythm guitar and Tony Thompson's drums kind of delicately dance around Bernard Edwards's super syncopated, playful bass parts, almost creating like the illusion of a four-on-the-floor kick drum, like they're slipping in disco under the door or something. Nile Rogers uh, went on to play with Duran Duran. Yeah, and produce them. Oh, yeah? He's played with he's played with them as recently as their uh, as 2015. He was on their single "Pressure Off." Yep, with uh, Janelle Monae. And the Notorious album is extremely Nile Rogersy. Yeah, they eventually extensively worked with Nile Rogers, which is cool because uh, he was an idol to them, and just it all turned around, and he got to it's it's just so it's neat. But it kind of it starts here, as you said. It's sort of you could sort of feel uh, that idol worship beginning here but i got a cool clip so in the bbc documentary john taylor plays the bass line in isolation and you can just really hear the influence that is a cool bass line oh yeah yeah seriously so the reason that u.s audiences got down to an ass-shaking disco groove in 1982 when disco was not cool is because the people who aren't named taylor in this band disguise it by drawing from duran duran's other major influence roxy music so simon Lebon he owes much to brian ferry's theatrical avuncular style uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and his suave performance here is almost like 007 three years before they actually did mm-hmm. a bond theme His interplay with uh, Nick Rhodes also brings to mind Brian Eno, except Rhodes successfully manages to fade into the background. And for more on that, check out our Brian Eno episode. (laughs) So I also want to zero in on Simon LeVon's harmonies. And I have another clip from the BBC documentary of Nick Rhodes talking about that. It's pretty cool. Her name is Rio and she dances on the sand. 
Yeah, Simon's voice. That sounds so cool. When he harmonizes with himself, becomes so thick and lush. I mean, I've rarely heard other people's voices blend so well with themselves. Yeah, so that's one thing I didn't notice about Duran Duran before watching that documentary. Uh, Simon Lebon, for the most part, usually just harmonizes with himself, which is something you don't get a lot. I didn't realize that either. Yeah, it creates a... I don't want to say wall of sound, but I like that idea like that it's lush, mm-hmm. and it, it creates a sort of pillowy... Act. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. You could... You sort of feel it like static. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and that's one thing I've always liked about it. Like somehow those yeah. harmonies always just sound so dense, even though it's only two parts, but somehow it's just really thick. Yeah. It must have been tough to reproduce live uh, or, yeah. or they just use like tapes or something. I don't know. I've heard their album Arena, which was a live album, and I'm pretty sure it uses tapes or overdubbing extensively. I'd have to mm-hmm. ask. I have a friend who has seen my friend Michelle. I want to give her a shout out. She's like a huge Duran Duran fan. She has seen them probably as many times as I've seen Steely Dan, which is a ridiculous number of times. Wow. Yeah. She's done the meet and greets, too. She's got pictures of her with Simon LeBond. that's so cool. It's so cute. Yeah. And so one final influence, there's even a bit of Keith Emerson, sort of, that dissonant opening, which is sort of like a cresting wave made out of jagged metal or something. It's the sound of metal rods being thrown onto piano strings. And then they reversed it. So Rio is prog. Awesome. It's another album that is prog. I will accept that. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's go for it. This is basically take a pebble. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, it's so I love that sort of plinkiness of it because it comes on so strong and it mm-hmm. right off the top, like they don't ease you in and then hit you with the, the big number. They start with it, which is like, mm-hmm. how do you how do you get better from here? But they somehow do. This is. I, I I don't love the B side as much, although my favorite song is on the B side. This A side is completely solid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And finally, the synth sound throughout the song is an arpeggiator, which is going to come up several times on the album. And so I don't put my foot in my mouth. Holiday producer Mike, what's an arpeggiator? An arpeggiator is a feature included in some synthesizers that generates a sequence of notes based on whichever keys the player presses simultaneously on the keyboard, thus creating an arpeggio from a chord. The resulting arpeggio can usually be played either upwards, downwards, or in random order. The last of these seems to have been a favorite of Duran Duran, as they use it in both Rio and Hungry Like the Wolf. I always wondered, like, how do you, how does something sound like glitter? (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Now I know. Very good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful sound, and you hear it several more times throughout the album. Yes, we do. Phil, what do you think about Rio? That's a pretty great song, as I think has already been covered. I think one thing about Duran Duran that I think a lot of people don't talk about enough is just how great the bass lines on a lot of their songs are. The bass line makes this song. The bass here is not just keeping the rhythm or accentuating the guitar. The bass is the main rhythmic thrust of the whole thing. And it's absolutely fantastic. If you subtract that bass out, you don't really have a song. But I love, you know, a good solid bass line, and this just kills it. One thing I'll point out here is I've probably heard this album a hundred times at least. I still don't know all the words to this song because I generally just don't pay attention to the words on Duran Duran albums because I'm pretty sure nobody is listening to Duran Duran for the words. 
<laughs> if no. you are, let us know. But to me, they're a band that's very much about the sound rather than the specific things they're saying. I somehow feel that there's not like a Paul Simon in the background here, like putting together just amazing lyrics. Yeah, I wouldn't not- say these are great lyrics, but I would say they're great words. I think that's yeah. the thing about like Simon Le Bon is that like it's just great imagery. He says it really well. He's always it's always in a new rhythm. He's always I mean, it makes it tough to do on karaoke, but you eventually learn it and you sound really awesome. Specific lyrics and lines will stick out to me, even if the entirety mm-hmm. of the song does not. There's always just bits and pieces that stick with me. Yeah. yeah he puts together words that are fun to sing. The writer in me loves the descriptions in here, uh, it means so much to me, like a birthday or a pretty view. You're mm-hmm. like, those things do mean a lot to me. I would not have thought to put those together. And uh, cherry ice cream <sighs> smile. You're like, I want a man to describe me like that. I just, I want, I want somebody to describe me the way. Yeah, but then he says, I suppose that's very nice. But like, that's that's incredibly British. Like, of course, it's underplayed. They can't show emotion. They get excited by ice cream. I mean, let's be real. <laughs> yeah, I think Simon LeBond's lyrics in general, like, really, really run the gamut. Like, New Moon on Monday opens with Shake Up the Picture, the Lizard Mixture. Yeah, and which, let's not even talk huh, about the yeah. reflex. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's a lonely child. Yeah, yeah. Oh, is that what that line is? <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk more about the reflex later. Just so you this wait. song's about, like, an animated bird from a recent movie, right? Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> That's when I was looking, you know, gathering my my information. That was the first thing that came up. Like I just Googled like Rio and this wasn't even on the first page. I was like, mm-hmm. are you shitting me? Ridiculous. And it, look, I have to ask, has anybody seen that stupid movie? I have, I have not. not. And I even have a young child and I've never seen it. Okay, because I want to know. I feel like there's probably a dance party to this song at the end of it. And I just I need to know that. So that I can add it to my like list of things I hate. Are you going to cover it on the OST party? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, as for me, I think this is a super fun album opener. And I like Simon LeBond's voice a lot. It sounds really unique. And he's really going full bore here. He's one of those singers where it feels like all they have to do is just open their mouth. And this giant, powerful sound just pours out of him. Oh, yeah. Which I enjoy just a whole lot. And besides that, I mean, the song is just superhumanly catchy and it's a ton of fun. And so it's a really, really great introduction to everything that comes after it. But I will say that about 90% of that is the chorus. The chorus of the song is freaking amazing. And to be honest with you, when this, I like the song, I like all of the song. I don't mean to imply that I don't, but when it's not actually playing, I have no idea how the verses go. I just heard it five minutes ago, and I have no idea how the verses go. All I can hear in my head is that friggin' amazing chorus. That's fair. You could probably put them all out of order, and it would still sound great. Mm-hmm. But what I mostly think about with this song is that bass line, though I must admit I frequently get it confused with uh, the bass line from Megadeth's Peace Sells But Who's Buying, which other listeners about our age will remember as the bass line sting that was used in the MTV news alerts. It's a very similar bass line, albeit used for very different purposes. All right. Speaking of MTV, 
Yes, let's talk about the video. Uh, so a lot of these songs had music videos. So this one was filmed in Antigua in the Caribbean, and it features the band cavorting on a yacht in bright Anthony Price suits. Though this is very, very much not yacht rock, or I guess yacht rock, as they <laughs> yeah, would say. Yeah, this would be 100% yacht rock. Thank God mm-hmm. for that. It's not, it's not even marina rock. <laughs> So there are shots of a model being showered in colored dye, Simon LeBon riding a horse on the beach, session musician Andy mm. Hamilton playing the song's awesome sax solo, which I forgot to mention, uh, while standing upright on a raft, and just like a general sort of Bond-like vibe. And like most of the van's early videos, it was directed by Russell Mulcahy, director of Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart video, as well as Highlander and Highlander 2, The Quickening. Where it's always 99 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this video is the only Duran Duran one that I actually remember seeing as a kid. And that's partly because usually we didn't have cable at home. Um, But I went to a babysitter who did and we watched music videos all the time there. Uh, So I do remember it from then. But honestly, I watched it again and it's a lot more awkward than (laughs) I recalled. Like, I like it, but there are big parts of it that look like it was filmed by their buddy who just happened to own a camcorder. Early 80s MTV videos are hilariously awkward if you watch them now. Yeah, they are. Yeah, the most expensive videos look like crap. It's pretty funny. It's the Wild West of music videos in the early 80s. I guess they couldn't all be money for nothing. Right. The Michael Jackson videos still look great, but on average, they look absurdly ridiculous. Mm Mm-hmm. I just have a quick note. Somebody mocked up my vinyl because they wrote, I think it must be where it debuted on the charts in America because next to Rio, it says 4983 number 14. Oh, wow. So, which is, is neat. I like that. That's kind of really stuff. cool. That's one of the fun things about buying secondhand vinyl. You get the prior owner's little notes and things. Yeah, and uh, apparently this was released in the United States on April 2nd, so I guess that's when it hit the charts. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh. I remember following Medazzaland on the charts. It it debuted at, like, number 57 or something, and I was thinking, all right, it's going to climb from here. It didn't. (laughs) All right, well, I think we've discussed Rio pretty thoroughly. So why don't we move along to track two, My Own Way. As I brought up before and written about on our blog, discordpod.com slash blog, visit it. It's great. I have a strange fascination with sequencing and particularly what songs artists and bands choose to put in position number two. So my own way is what I think of as a sort of factory showroom track. And I'm not referring to the TMBG album. The spiraling shape will make you go 
Yes, you are. You always are. <laughs> Unless you mean that this song is S-E-X-X-Y. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing about this song is particularly flashy or virtuosic or anything, but it's almost like Duran Duran or like demonstrating the basic model of what a Duran Duran song sounds like for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another song like this uh, to me is No One Else from Weezer's Blue Album, which demonstrates the basic Weezer sound right down to the casual misogyny. <laughs> yep. That song is like if a fedora came to life. <laughs> I loved that song when I was 15 and now listening to it in my late 30s. I'm like, oh, my God. You, you want to go back and shake your 15 year old self? Like, no. Uh-huh. Yeah. I knew that throwing a Weezer bomb would work. So <laughs> oh, yeah. what is the Duran Duran sound? Broadly speaking, they were New Romantics, uh, which is a high glamour, high fashion group of bands that were inspired by, like, say, David Bowie, T-Rex's Mark Bolin, and, of course, Roxy Music. And kept the ruffled shirt industry in business for years. Hell yeah. You can basically hear the makeup in this music. Like it's smeared all over the synths or something. Uh, It's associated in my mind with like the earliest, cheapest days of MTV. And it includes acts like uh, A Flock of Seagulls, Soft Cell, ABC, and especially Spando Ballet, who were kind of built up in the UK media instantly as Duran Duran's rival, like from the very beginning. Uh, the two even faced off on the BBC music quiz show, Pop Quiz. Uh, and I wanted to include a clip, but I went through and the whole thing was just so inane. I couldn't find anything to clip, but I'll put it in the show notes if you really want to hear it. I will say this about Spando Ballet. They, in terms of music rivalries, Spando Ballet are to Duran Duran as Jerry and the Pacemakers are to the Beatles. <laughs> I was going to say, that I can't think of a single film. one of their songs. <laughs> True. And you'll tell me. And all I can think of is is too shy, and that's Kaga Juju. Yeah, yeah. The I know this much is true. You know, the very oh. end of the wedding singer, the, the, the way Steve Buscemi, Buscemi sings. sings the like, yes, thing. yes, exactly. Yes. And I did that song on the OST party, and I still like can't even remember it. Robbie, that's and how much Spandu Ballet means to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Amanda and I have already argued about this, but I hate that song. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're there, there was an episode of Modern Family that supposedly featured a member of Spando Ballet, but they couldn't even get a guy from Spando Ballet to be in the episode. So they just got an actor to pretend to be a member of Spando Ballet. I think if I was in Spando Ballet, I don't think I'd want to tell people that either. I don't think I'd want to admit it. Do you guys know how they got their name? I do not. The Spandau Ballet refers to, you know what Spandau Prison is, right? No, that is the Again, prison where the Nazi war criminals were held. Like that's where Albert oh. Speer and Rudolf Hess were. And the Spandau Ballet refers to when they were hanged, when they were put to death, their feet would twitch. That's dark. And that was referred to as the Spandau Ballet. That is the darkest thing I have literally ever heard <laughs> in know. my entire life. I wow. know. It's not Holy horrible. shit. But yeah, and yet they were like a band that just sounds like glitter on the dance floor uh-huh it's not the glitter that like the duran duran is the glitter that comes from the cannons spando ballet is like what's left on the dance floor gets stuck to your shoes like it's still pretty but mm-hmm. <laughs> just isn't the same and they're named after nazi war criminals being executed i know that's really bad that's like a metal band spando <laughs> ballet the band that should be spando ballet should be opening for black sabbath <laughs> next week at uh Upstate concert hall. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Sorry, Marvin. You've been booted. Poor Marvin. (laughs) So on with our Spanda Ballet episode. (laughs) 
So these bands were more united by a scene and fashion sense than any actual shared DNA in their music besides, you know, synthesizers. But genres are a construct and it takes culture to give them meaning. So New Romantic is as accurate of a label as any other. So there. Uh, And as I'll talk about later, a lot of this image was readily thrust upon them by the UK press from pretty much the moment they stepped onto the scene. Uh, But anyway, onto my own way. So it was actually the first single from Rio, technically, but only because they recorded and released it as a standalone single in November 1981 before the rest of the album. The single version is much more explicitly disco, featuring a string arrangement and a more up-tempo beat. As great as Ula Dub Ula, but it's close. <laughs> anyway, if I may attempt some millennial slang, the song slaps. <laughs> it perhaps doesn't need to be five minutes long, but that just helps it drill it into your head where it deserves to be. Yeah, it is a little extended there on the outro, and you're like, okay, we uh, get yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. This song for me, I mean, this whole album reminds me of January 2009 in grad school. But this one sort of in particular, because my friend Matthew and I were such weird outcasts in our grad school. So this is like kind of our anthem in being in that that class of MFA students. Like, we just got to we got to find our own way. And here we are driving around listening to Duran Duran. Yeah, for me, I mean, this is the kind of song that gets stuck in my head, whether I want it there or not. And to be honest with this one, I usually don't. Rich, I really like your description of a factory showroom Duran Duran song, and I totally agree with that. And while I like... brand new Duran Duran. (laughs) And I like factory issue Duran Duran just fine, but this is missing the little upgrades that make their other songs great. You know, like the power windows and the sunroof and whatnot. Yeah, this is very much like the Model T, like as it comes from the factory before you have all the other parts. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Honda Civic of Duran Duran songs. It's functional. It's just not sexy. It's not the flashy car that's going to catch your attention when it drives past your house. Yeah. But it's got its own way. It does. It's definitely the song on this album that sounds most like their first album. Oh, yeah. Because generally speaking, Rio, you know, Duran Duran's second album, has a much warmer, more commercial sound than their debut, the their first self-titled album. They would have another one later, which was pretty cold and new wavy. This was clearly an attempt to be more commercial. My Own Way, being the lead single, is probably as close as you're going to get here to something that sounds more like the more mechanical dance music of their debut. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. And also the chorus to me is actively annoying. Like I don't dislike the song at all and I don't skip it, but it's not a standout for me at all. Yeah. It's one that when I hear it, I'm just like, okay, yeah, I like this song, but I don't think about it very often. And then it's not one it would get skipped probably if it came up on shuffle. If I'm listening to the vinyl, I'm not yeah. going to skip over it. Yeah. And especially since skipping songs on vinyl takes some effort. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I'll let it play. It's inoffensive. 
Yeah, yeah. And as to the sound of this album as it compares to the debut, I read a lot of comments from contemporary interviewers that observed that like they were trying to take on more of a US sound. And I can hear that from like that version, that single version where they were trying to take on like the disco strings and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And this one sort of pairs well in that way with like Hold Back the Rain. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So it just, again, I think Factory Showroom was the best, the best description. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a mighty fine TMBG album. But how does it compare to XTC or Adam Ant? Uh, that song is terrible. <laughs> that's the worst song on the album, Phil. But XTC is great. Yeah, that's actually how I learned about XTC, but that's another episode. All right. Oh, 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 and there's a, there's a music video. Uh, the music video accompanies the faster single version, and it's just a basic performance video with lots of red, a parrot who tries to nip at Nick Rhodes' fingers, which isn't nice, but and a matador played by Adrian Paul, who went on to play Duncan McLeod in Highlander the series. The Highlander connections deepen. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> there can be only one, and it's Duran Duran. Sorry, Spando Ballet. All right, well... I'm sure we could explore those Highlander connections further if we really wanted to. But instead, let's move on to track three, Lonely in Your Nightmare. hard to these harmonies now now that i know it's all him so producer mark ronson who has worked with the band he calls this song one of his favorite duran duran deep cuts and he says if duran duran hadn't been so ridiculously good looking this would have been the coolest cool kids anthem in every goth disco this side of deptford that's i agree mark ronson legit i agree Mm -hmm. i'm still sick of uptown funk though so this song almost presents an alternate, like more birds influenced Duran Duran oh. sound that they never really chose to develop. And that's one of the reasons I love it. But I, I was having trouble nailing down exactly why this song seems so uncanny and so little like the Duran Duran I was used to. And then I realized that it sounds kind of like a new romantic version of early R.E.M., like something from Murmur with synthesizers or something. Separated by an ocean and culture, abandoned Birmingham, England, and Athens, Georgia, came up with something like, at least to me, approaching the same sound. One of my friends calls this Newton Leibnizing something after the mathematicians who simultaneously invented calculus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so wow. they. I nerded up my episode. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really saying something. 
But Birdsy Jangle Pop isn't the only influence going on here. Uh, So this is a rare Duran Duran song to feature fretless bass. And in fact, John Taylor was interviewed about this by fretlessbass.com, an impressively specific archive of interviews with bassists (laughs) about their memorable fretless bass parts. We'll link to it in the show notes. Actually, my friend Matthew plays fretless bass because of John Taylor. Oh, cool. Oh, he's only played fretless bass a few times. He says that in the interview, but I guess they're really good parts, including this one. Yeah, he but he bought uh like the same fretless bass that he uses. Oh wow. I don't know if he still has it, but yeah, he's Matthew's a huge, huge, huge Duran Duran fan, which I think is one of the most adorable things about him. <laughs> but this one, I think because it doesn't have that eighties sound that Duran Duran was such a huge influence on, there's a loveliness to it. You almost get the sense, is that like a string fill? Am I just like mishearing that? Or what is making that sound? So Nick Rhodes used a specific type of string synthesizer. Yeah. For it. I, I don't know all of the synth gear on this album. This is, I, I retroactively wish we had producer Mike here uh, for the entire episode <laughs> instead of just the arpeggiator. But, but I I love that because it gives it this very kind of cotton candy softness that is also it's it's sweet without being sugary that makes sense yeah because so much 80s music tends to be way too sugary but this it's just it just melts yeah and that it it sweetens it up just enough yeah and that line like and there's warm beneath your winter and it's i'm in uh upstate new york as i record this and i am wearing a long sleeve shirt under a sweater and i am still very cold (laughs) I'm in Ontario and I have a long sleeve shirt and wool socks and I'm freezing. Yeah, I mean, you guys get it. You're all like, you live in winterlands like me. And so this song is like a hot toddy. It just warms you from the inside out. Let me just say I'm having some mulled wine right now. It's delightful. <laughs> I actually wish I had a hot toddy right now. I don't know why. I don't. That does sound good. Yeah. Oh, and one more thing about the bass work. So Taylor says in that interview with fretlessbass.com that the bass work was inspired by fellow new romantic band Japan, whose album Tin Drum is very much in the same ecosystem as Duran Duran, especially the first album. Yes, it is. I love that that romantic sentiment. I'll be your homing angel. I'll be in your head. And uh-huh. I just I think that's so sweet. And it's to me, it's one of the songs that is most grounded in what it's trying to say. It's not as abstract. It's, you know, kind of a it's much more of a love song than anything else we'll see on here. And it's a little more centered in like, OK, that that makes sense right there. Uh-huh. That isn't. A ridiculous line like mouth is alive with juices like wine like what the fuck does that mean <laughs> but this i mean there's still some extremely duran duran lines in here i see the delta traces living lonely out on your limb what but um but you've built your refuge turns you captive all the same that is a line you you understand you feel mm-hmm. around you Rather than just like, huh, well, that's those are definitely words arranged in the order of a sentence. Yeah. And I I freaking love this one. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. And one of the reasons yes. is because some of these lines are spectacular. Like even just that first line in the chorus, you're lonely in your nightmare. Let me in. That is a spectacular lyric. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not one that I would have seen coming <laughs> after, yeah. you know, listening to the rest of this album is just not their forte. And that's just not the point of their songs. You know, not all songs need to have really spectacular poetic lyrics. And Duran Duran's words are just fine for the songs that they're in. But this song, I feel like, is a little bit more ambitious than the rest mm-hmm. of the album. And a lot of the lines they came up with, you know, actually live up to that ambition. I feel like even the melody is a little bit more sophisticated than a lot of what's what comes around it. And the melody in the verses actually reminds me quite a bit of Give Me Back My Man by the B-52s. Huh. Uh, just compressed a bit. Like they don't <laughs> stretch out the vowels the way Cindy Wilson does in that song. I mean, and which is just fine by me. That song's spectacular. And then we have this big old gear shift in the chorus, which, you know, at least the first time around sounds completely different, but also fits perfectly with the verses. And then by the end of the song, they're blended together really, really well. And I'd also say that the song is particularly well produced. There's a lot going on, but it's easy to find each piece of the song. It never just gets mushed all together. So it's still bright and clean, but not in that plasticky mutt langway somehow i it's that's remarkable to me how different different producers can sound yeah it's sort of like it's more of a bead curtain than a wall of sound like mm-hmm. you can part it you don't just like slam your head yeah, up against it yeah. yes that's a great way to put it and even though this song is a much darker color to me than the rest of the album is it's not it doesn't just turn into sludge. That's funny because I would say the same thing, actually, as we get to something like New Religion. That, to me, has a darker mm. color to it. But interesting. It, it, yeah, that does, too. Now, if I may rain on everyone's parade a little bit. I like this song, but I actually don't like the production of this one very much. Really? Interesting. I think Defend the drums yourself. are mixed a little low. <laughs> like, the drums kind of feel like they're in the background and aren't really driving anything and everything else is mixed kind of too high and it kind of i feel neuters the song a little bit i wish it had a little bit more of a propulsive beat which i think would have happened if they'd mixed the drums higher because as it is it just kind of feels a little bit off to me it's not bad this is still a good song because you know spoiler there's no bad songs on this album this is a very good album but I kind of wish it had a little bit more percussion forward production. But that's a personal preference, obviously. Yeah, I like how it's kind of floating there, personally. This one, to me, pairs with Last Chance on the Stairway. And I think, Phil, that addresses your claims there. Because that, yeah, because that has that. I like that The, the drums in that are really pronounced. And they're very defined. Yeah, I feel like this one glides very nicely. I don't feel like it needs yeah. to be propelled. But yeah, personal preference. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and uh, this one is this one also has a video and it's the first of 3 on this album that were f- filmed in Sri Lanka. So these videos were intended to present the band as cultured adventurers who are way wealthier than an emerging band actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did a lot to distinguish the band from their peers. Uh, but viewed today, they come up as kind of tacky and colonialist. They uh, really do. There's a particularly uncomfortable moment where the band watches some dancers and one of their faces is then superimposed onto Nick Rhodes's face. It's very strange. That's weird. Uh, otherwise, it's mostly Simon right. LeBond wandering around in search of a mysterious woman, yada, yada, yada. You can just fill in the blanks yourself. <laughs> is he wearing a white suit? Probably. Yeah. He is in all the others. 
getting his leisure suit Larry cosplay on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, next up is the moment we have been waiting for since we started this podcast. It's Hungry Like the Wolf. It's time. Hungry Like the Wolf. Hungry Like the Wolf. Hungry Like the Wolf. <laughs> start so this is duran duran's signature song and it's the namesake for our podcast though to tell you the truth we picked our name mostly because it was catchy we were just throwing out names Uh, i actually first heard this as a 10 second clip on a cd-rom edition of the billboard music guide and that was all it took for me to be hooked by that synth arpeggio which definitely didn't resemble any music on the radio in 1997 (laughs) Uh, (laughs) except maybe i want you by savage garden uh But anyway, so let's start with the arpeggiator. So this is easily the most prominent use of the arpeggiator on the whole album, and it's an interesting use of it because if what I've read from synth nerds checks out, uh, like they set the arpeggiator to a range of one octave and then just set it to random, meaning you're not really hearing a repeating pattern throughout the song. Uh, I'm not sure if Nick Rhodes plays the original pattern live, generates it randomly each time, or whether anyone would even notice, but... If anyone knows, write in at discordpod at gmail.com. We love feedback. Especially from synth nerds. That's pretty amazing because it sounds so great. It does. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't imagine the song without it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was built from that, apparently. Uh, and so Roger Taylor, his really distinctive drum fills on the song, uh, they come from a Simmons SDS-5, which was the first electronic replacement for acoustic drums. And uh, it featured hexagonal pads similar to what Def Leppard's Rick Allen used. Uh, and if you want to hear more on that, uh, check out our Def Leppard episode. I talked about that a lot. <laughs> Yeah, you did. Uh, So Duran Duran remixed the drums to have this like full ambient sound, but then gated them in the style invented by our friend Phil Collins. Uh, So they sound both full and kind of harsh and abrupt. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And if you want to hear like this in in greater detail, just check out that BBC documentary on YouTube. They talk about Hungry (laughs) Like the Wolf so much. And then there's the bridge. It's hard not to focus on Simon Le Bon and his ridiculous, like, hungry like the wolf. Hungry, hungry like, like the wolf. Which is really such a distraction for the song. It's just like, oh, yeah. God, no. Stop. It is yeah, he does bit. that a few times on the album. Uh, but in the background, Andy Taylor's guitar parts are almost like something Robert Fripp would do. Uh, <laughs> and who worked with Colin Thurston on Bowie's Berlin trilogy? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So Hungry Like the Wolf has graced many a soundtrack, uh, including Big Fat Liar starring Frankie (laughs) Muniz and Paul Giamatti, apparently. Uh, But you should cover that on OST Party. (laughs) 
Uh, but Libby and I know it best from a classic scene in FX's cop drama, The Shield, one of the best shows of all time. Yes, this uh, appears in the episode Tar Baby in season four. And uh, Vic Mackey, played by uh, Michael Chiklis, has bugged the car of Dutch Wagenbach, played by my friend Jay Carnes. They catch him singing Hungry Like the Wolf at the conclusion of an incredibly awkward date. No, 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 wait, wait. This is, this is a big finish. And because the S.H.I.E.L.D. writers know the value of a good setup, uh, Mackie has a really dickish follow-up retort for Dutch later on. Have you run a canvas to the area? You know, I have run a murder investigation before. Right, and I couldn't be happier having a seasoned law enforcement professional such as yourself working the case under me. Just attack it. Like you're hungry. <laughs> like the wolf. <laughs> oh, Vic Mackey. Oh, what a jerk. Yeah, but that's one of my primary mental associations with Hungry Like the Wolf. <laughs> my alarm wakes me up to a cl- the local classic rock station every morning. And this is a frequently played song on that station. So there are mornings and where I wake up to Hungry Like the Wolf. And my association is so strong that my first waking thought has occasionally been that scene, which is a nice way to start off the day because... Jay Carnes is ridiculously, stupidly, obnoxiously handsome. So it's just like, yes, this is actually going to be a really good day. I hear it pretty <laughs> frequently. But um, we have a running joke, Jay and I, where he will torture me with Billy Joel lyrics because he's handsome and charming and can get away with that shit. And there was one morning where my alarm went off to Uptown Girl. And I was like, well, I'm not dealing with that shit. And it's just like slammed the snooze button. Next song that played was Hungry Like the Wolf. I'm like, yes, I have won this war. (laughs) That's great. So I'm always going to think of him when I hear that song. I like Billy Joel. This was a song that was just good enough that it punctured my cooler than thou, you know, 14, 15 year old shell and just I couldn't deny how good this song was. Mm-hmm. I broke down and bought this album and then got into a whole lot of other you know, music because of it, which people who listen to this podcast know I'm something of a musical omnivore. But for a long time, I wasn't. And this was one of the albums that kind of broke down my defenses. And it's because of this song. So that's what eventually led you to buy the complete discography of Foghat. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's a strange journey, I'll tell you. <laughs> But I think this is just you know one of the all-time great pop songs. Just a wonderful arrangement. Love the arpeggiator in it. Just the way the chord change when he sings the word wolf in the chorus. It's just such an mm-hmm. unexpected uh, yeah. but great chord change. It's really good. It's just one of the all-time great pop music hooks in that chorus. I mean, I could go on forever, but I won't because, I mean, it's Hungry Like the Wolf. You know that it's great. If you don't know that it's great then why are you even listening to it this? is it's such a master class in how to write a pop song but it is not simple oh yeah when you you sit and listen to it it's deceptively so mm-hmm. but when you really get down into it rich as you were getting into you kind of can't believe that it ever came to be like how is it brilliant 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they built it over the course of a day, apparently, when they were hungover. Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, man. The story's just like, I wish I had the kind of talent to just slam this together. I know, it's like when you realize that, um, what is it, Jolene and I Will Always Love You were written the same night. Yeah, yeah. Or that Neil <laughs> Young wrote Cinnamon Girl while he was sick in bed with the flu. <laughs> just knocked out a song. Like, oh, it's sickening. Black Sabbath's Paranoid, written and recorded in less than an hour. Oh, musicians are amazing. I'm amazed by people who who understand music like Rich the way you do to be able to break it down like that. And people who can write yeah, music. Yeah, I, I, I can't compose music. Or like Paul McCartney waking up in the morning with Yesterday in his head. I know. That's the only time I ever like hear music like that, like where I can compose, is when I take nighttime Theraflu. And one of the side effects for that, for me, is EDM beats. Like, just the most elaborate EDM <laughs> beats, which I can also see. Well, I think that's listed in the side effects on the package, isn't it? I think May so. visualize EDM beats. Yes. And if I knew how to put those down, I would be the greatest DJ in the world. <laughs> What's that music? That's not music. That's, that's EDM. <laughs> It's a little bonus for our good place watching <laughs> listeners. Thank you, Eleanor Shellstrop. So before I talk about the actual song, I want to talk about the name of our podcast just a little bit because Rich was being way too modest there at the beginning. This was actually his idea. When we were tossing about names at the very beginning, uh, we went through a few options. At one point, I, su- I suggested Electric Mayhem because I'm a big fan of Dr. Teeth. Mm-hmm. Who isn't? Right? All all smart people are, which is why I thought it would be a good name. And then Rich popped up and said, why don't we call it Discord and Rhyme? Which was kind of a revelation for me because, A, until he said that, I'd always thought the line in the song was disco and rhyme. Hmm. So that, that enlightened me. And also because, I mean, not only is it a reference to a song that everyone in the entire world knows and loves, it was also just really thematically accurate because sometimes we agree or rhyme, but other times... We very much do not. So there's plenty of discord around here, too. So, I mean, this this works on multiple levels. So I'll never forgive your hatred of Tempest Fugit. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was the archetypal discord on our podcast. Go back to our yes episode if you want to know about that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, Phil, you're the one who didn't like Forever Autumn on the War yeah, of the Worlds well. episode. So, yeah, as you, you know, as we've demonstrated, this name has proven to be really, really apt for our podcast. And that is to Rich's credit because that was his idea. So (laughs) thanks again for that, Rich. It's a great name for our podcast. Thanks. It was either that or Album Exploder, but we probably would have gotten some pushback on that one eventually. (laughs) Most likely. (laughs) Nobody seemed to vote for my some nerds talk about music or something. (laughs) Slightly less catchy. So as for the actual song, I do not remember a time when I didn't know it. I mean, there's there's a reason this was such a massive hit and why you still hear it all the damn time, almost 40 years after it was released. And that's because it is freaking fantastic. <laughs> it is full of little elements that individually would have made the song ridiculously catchy, even if there was only one of them, like those like the do 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 bits in the verses you know, the, and those drum fills that Rich talked about that remind me of baby versions of that big giant drum fill in In the Air Tonight. And then there's, you know, that arpeggiator that we keep talking about, that amazingly good chorus. But this song has 
all of those elements and is therefore scientifically proven to be the very catchiest pop song ever recorded. It's science. It's science. Science. I have a note (laughs) that this apparently charted at number three on January 22nd, 1983. I do not know if that is accurate, but a couple of quick notes on Hungry Like the Wolf. There's two versions there is what's known as the night mix, which is what's on the LP. Then there's a shorter U.S. mix, uh, which is shorter by about a minute, hmm. uh, that appears on the standard issue CD. And that the night mix has the extended intro um, as opposed to the radio mix. That's also on the 45. Hmm. Uh, the single mix is at 4 minutes 11 seconds the night mix which is also on the mini lp carnival comes in at 5 minutes 14 seconds hmm. so yeah when i first heard when i first put on the lp i was kind of taken aback it's like uh is this like the instrumental did i get the wrong one is there something wrong with my stereo <laughs> and then the vocals kick in the do 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 do's kick in hmm yeah, so it's kind of neat. Yeah. So again, buy records, people. Yeah. Get all sorts of fun stuff. Oh, and if you were wondering what Hungry Like the Wolf was, number three behind, uh, number one was Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. So, uh, well, yeah. I actually thought you were going to say Billy Joel, and I was just going to storm off. <laughs> no. <laughs> but number two was uh, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me by Culture Club, which that was quite a week. That is an extremely yeah. 80s week. It's like if you could sum it up sure the is. 80s, it's right there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Just uh, just scrolling down, we got back on the chain gang by the Pretenders at number five. Mr. Roboto by Styx. That was wow. the first song on the compilation CD. Oh wow! That I had this song on. <laughs> but we should get moving. Uh, and this one, of course, has a music video. Yeah, Rich. I hear this has a music video. Tell us about it. This one, of course, has a music video. Yeah. It's practically part of the song. Uh, it's another one filmed in Sri Lanka. It, it has uh, an, an Indiana Jones theme. And uh, remember, only Raiders of the Lost Ark was uh, out at this point. It was brand new. And it features Simon Le Bon kayaking, crossing a dangerous suspension bridge, rising slowly out of the water, and facing off like a tiger against another mysterious woman. <laughs> it is, again, colonialist AF, but it's fun. I don't know. Uh, it's a Duran Duran video. Well, you didn't mention the very best part of this video, which is Simon yeah, Lebon lying on his back on a rock, singing the chorus, while a young Sri Lankan child runs up from the beach and squeezes water into his mouth from a rag that he's just soaked in the ocean. Delicious. <laughs> well, that's Hungry Like the Wolf. <laughs> All right, so... Okay, this, this podcast is over now. Yep, okay, yeah, we're calling it. No, we're kidding. We're going to move on to track five, which is Hold Back the Rain. Yeah. 
as we said earlier, Simon Le Bon's lyrics are generally impressionistic and meant to be taken just more as images. Uh, and we'll hear that tendency, especially in effect on the next track. Uh, but according to the band on VH1's Behind the Music, uh, <laughs> Hold Back the Rain is very direct. It's Le Bon's message to John Taylor about his drinking. Uh, and he even slipped the lyrics under Taylor's door the night he wrote them. Uh, so Taylor told VH1 that he assumed that drugs and partying were just what you do as a rock star, which is really, really common. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took another 12 years for him to sober up. But the note under the door has never come up between the two of them. Hmm. But anyway, so Hold Back the Rain opens side two on the LP and coming right off Hungry Like the Wolf on the mm-hmm. CD. It's a lot more clear that this song is kind of a rerun. Though it has its own distinct melody and character, for sure. Uh, And that's yet another arpeggiator on the track. And the repeating pattern here has kind of a tone-painting quality, like the notes are meant to resemble drops of rain. Uh, Personally, it reminds me of the intro to Eurythmics' Here Comes the Rain Again, uh, which also uses an arpeggiator to create a rain-like effect. Uh, But they add in some pizzicatos, too, like the raindrops. Here comes the rain again. Hold it back. (laughs) I don't mean to correct you, but it is actually the last song on the A side. Oh, the B side. is it really? Religion opens the B side. Yes. Yeah. Uh, this is why we have you here. Queen of vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Hold Back the Rain is a good example of the band using the studio as a tool to achieve sounds beyond their early instrumental capabilities, even though it's not that distinctive of a song in its own right. Uh, so what I mean here is that John Taylor's bass part, it, it's actually three bass parts taped together. So uh, the basic melody and those quick bends in the verses were recorded separately because they were just too difficult for him to play at that point. Uh, and then for that galloping rhythm in the chorus, he had to switch to a pick for that. So uh, like they basically had to like splice those three together. Um, and apparently it was a pain in the ass to play live and still is. Yeah, uh, I used to wonder why this bass sound was so distinct to early Duran Duran, and the answer is that it's really, really hard to play, and that the band were still young punks, like, playing with the rules. Um, and again, I bet, like, Colin Thurston's experience with Bowie and Eno played a role in, like, encouraging the band to sort of use the studio to sculpt their songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to stretch that sound, simply because it couldn't be played live, or would be difficult to play. So, see what you can, see what you can bend, mm-hmm. see what you can break. Yeah, this is definitely uh, like a Hungry Like the Wolf retread. And when I thought this was the first song on side two, I figured, okay, on the LP, it's probably useful for continuity. But apparently it was always coming back to <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back, my friends, to Hungry <laughs> Like the Wolf. <laughs> two ELP songs on this playlist. I love it. <laughs> but yeah, no, this one to me feels more like my own way in the chorus. Like they they yeah. blend together, which I think is neat to to have those. You could look at at each song on the album, because to me again we're gonna get to New Religion. That sounds like Rio, but this one feels like the the B side to My Own Way. I yeah you know I I I don't disagree with you, but I feel like you know while this is a perfectly fine song and it has a lot of energy and definitely its own personality, it just there's just there's too many common elements with Hungry Like the Wolf, except not as good and not, they don't fit together as well. Yeah. And I I could hear that. It just sounds a little too similar and I wish they'd changed it up a little bit more. 
Or at least swapped it to the B-side, like switch this out with something like Last Chance on the Stairway, because yeah. Last Chance on the Stairway gets so lost on the B-side as the second yeah. track, and it would have been mm. a good uh, closer for the A-side. Yeah. Putting this here was a sequencing mistake. I agree. Yeah, definitely. I think if it had come later, it would have it, it wouldn't sound so much like a retread. There's an extended mix of this that really makes it clear how much it sounds like Hungry Like the Wolf, because, you know, the famous guitar line in Hungry Like the Wolf, whereas there's a guitar line in this goes, it's the same thing, but without the last two notes. Yeah, I never I never picked up on that. So thanks for pointing that out. Now I'm not gonna be able to unhear that. But that's that's really cool. Yep, there it is. I can hear it. Ha. Yep, and at the beginning, <laughs> there's like the kind of whispered part that sounds like the Hungry Like the Wolf bridge. Yeah, and it has and tiny it's... little drum fills. Yeah. Yeah, it's like if Hungry Like the Wolf and My Own Way had a baby, it's Hold Back the Rain. <laughs> it's still a yep. very good song just because it's it's got its own unique melody, but it's clearly built on the exact same pattern and putting it right here, right after Hungry Like the Wolf, it's going to get lost, which it kind of mm-hmm. does. I just like the idea of various tracks on this album procreating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, see that Hold Back the Rain sounds so much like an inverse almost of I've Got My Own Way. Okay, track six is New Religion. is subtitled a dialogue between the ego and the alter ego which is peak simon Le Bon. oh my god yes <laughs> just dial it back a little bro dial back the ruffled shirtness this is a good chance to focus on him a little bit so Lebon, he's been a showman since birth apparently basically modeling at four and making his wow. tv debut at five as apparently the dirty shirt in a soap powder commercial i was not able to find this commercial i'm sorry oh. <laughs> Uh, but by the time he had he auditioned for Duran Duran, he was pursuing drama at Birmingham University, and he arrived at the audition apparently in leopard skin pink trousers, sunglasses, boots, and a suede sixties jacket, clutching an exercise book. I oh need God. to own that outfit. He is, as the kids say, extra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But so one interesting thing about Gaiman's bio uh, is that it was written in 1984 at the height of their fame. And so this early history was pretty recent. And so one thing Laban he dealt with a lot early on was just being dismissed as a vocalist, even by his fellow band members. Like they would just diss him in the bio. This is in part because like as founders like Nick Rhodes and John Taylor, like, you know, saw Simon Laban's fame rising as like a front man, even though he didn't play a part in like forming the band. They were just jealous and such. But anyway, he's a I personally don't think he's a particularly gifted vocalist on a technical level. But, you know, he's very much in the Mick Jagger tradition of swagger and just being interesting to listen to word for word. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a, a sexiness that he oh, yeah. carries, a yeah, real yeah. sensuality. Definitely. You should listen to him speak, like uh, giving an interview. He has the, he's the most soft-spoken, polite guy. Right? Really? really? Yeah. <laughs> so as usual, I have no idea what the hell the lyrics are getting at, but uh, the song, like, it represents the dialogue between ego and alter ego by overdubbing a Laban counterpoint vocal over his lead vocal. Um, and it actually reminds me of Swimming Pool's Drank by Kendrick Lamar, which uses a similar device to illustrate the battle between Lamar and his alcohol addiction. Okay, now open your mind up and listen to me, Kendrick. I'm in your conscience. If you do not hear me, then you will be history, Kendrick. I know that you're nauseous right now, and I'm hoping to lead you to victory, Kendrick. If I take another one down, I'm drown in some poison abuse on my limit. I think that I'm feeling the vibe. So musically, the band has admitted to a couple of pretty direct lifts. And uh, so the main riff, and in fact, pretty much the entire intro comes from Shine On You Crazy Diamond by Pink Floyd. <laughs> yeah. Which I actually heard several years after I first heard this song, so I didn't even notice this until now. And so the bass riff is a little more subtle and comes from the main riff from Stay off of David Bowie's Station to Station. John Taylor like directly admits this in the BBC documentary. Hmm. Um, And so the song leans a little more interesting than fun. But growing up, I always loved how expansive it felt and that it had like a crazy concept and stuff. I distinctly remember being obsessed with this one somewhere around February of 2009. My only note on this one is that I did put it on a mix I made for my minister. (laughs) (laughs) If you had asked me to name all the songs on Rio, I probably would not have named this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and, you know, Rich, I love that we have both missed obvious Pink Floyd references <laughs> after, you know, I, I after we just had this conversation about, you know, hysteria and goodbye, blue sky, my terrible gaffe there because they're identical. And even this, like, apparently I'm just completely incapable of noticing Pink Floyd imitations because I, I'm not sure I would have noticed this on my own, even though that little guitar phrase is identical to Shine On You Crazy Diamond, just with a slightly different rhythm. And other than that, I mean, this is a, it's a perfectly good song and I like it just fine, but does it really need to be five and a half minutes long? No. <laughs> the answer is no. Okay. Well, that's how long the battle between the ego and the alter ego lasts, a whole five and a half minutes. So All right. you, you can't rush that. No, it's pretty epic. What would Chidi say about this song? <laughs> <laughs> I think he would just get a stomach <laughs> He would. This is the peeps chili of, so- of Duran Duran songs. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> I think the Shine On You Crazy Diamond thing is interesting, too, because in the documentary, John Taylor just like plays the riff and he's like, oh, yeah, that's Dave Gilmore right there. It, like he just wow. admits it like uh, and uh, I mean, it's this is uh, the same well, key as far as I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think uh, well, I don't really think of it as like theft, really. I, I mean, so I, I just read Elvis Costello's uh, autobiography. Uh, uh, what is it like? Uh, Hold on. Let me let me lean over and look at it. 
Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink, and it's beautiful. Yeah, and just just in talking about like writing his songs, he'll just like constantly refer to like other songs that he took a bit from, like here and there. Like songwriters just do that. Like that's how influence like physically comes through in the music. I think. Yeah. There's something. I think it was T. S. Eliot said something about how like. Poor writers imitating great writers steal. I I, I don't think I'm getting that oh, quite yeah, right, yeah. but I you know I I kind of I see his point here in this song because even though like we said that little guitar phrase is the very same, I wouldn't call it theft either, and I don't think it's something that would be worth like suing over, you know, unless you're the Marvin Gaye estate, I guess. But I, <laughs> because it's those four notes are the same. But they're also they're used completely differently. I don't think like this doesn't seem like a terrible like act of plagiarism to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I that musicians just songwriters just do this all the time. Oh, and yeah. I, I, I personally don't think that like four notes uh, can only appear like in a row in one song. Right. And even though like the whole intro is very reminiscent of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Like, there's nothing else that I think is directly lifted. And I think it's also perfectly fair to say, hey, that little four note guitar phrase is really fantastic. I bet you I could take that and do something totally new with it. And they did. That said, this isn't quite as good of a song as Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Maybe not quite. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, since Shine On You Crazy Diamond is over, let's move on to track seven, (laughs) which is Last Chance on the Stairway. song in Rio where I don't really have anything unique to say except that the backing vocals are Nick Rhodes instead of an overdub Simon LeBon um, and that's why they're not quite as good as they usually are <laughs> but I like it and but I like I like the song but I like it for all the same reasons I like the rest of the album but in a different order uh, but a lot of Duran Duran fans really really love this song and one of them is my good friend Maria from college who was the second Durani I ever met and served as proof that cool people actually liked this band. So I reached out to her to share her own memories about Last Chance on the Stairway. So I'm going to quote that right now. <clears throat> so Maria says, When I was 13, I heard a live version of this song on the radio while on vacation in Rome. I was moody and romantic, and my mom insists on being three hours early for every flight. So I remember sitting on the floor in a corner of the airport with my Walkman and recognizing this song on the radio. Rio was my favorite album at the time, and recognizing the little synth sparkles in the intro's then-signature bass line, which is like the most audible part of the song on a cheap Walkman and local radio, was absolutely energizing. And to realize it was a live version I had never heard before just cemented the song in that place and time for me. 
There's a sense of urgency of arriving at a party with the whole night ahead of you that always brings me back to being a new teenager and being on the cusp of adventure. I still listen to this song nearly every time I'm on a plane as it takes off, which is partly because nearly everything else on my phone is one of my daughter's Disney song or podcasts. Hello, middle age. As a side note, drapey things, curtains and nets seem to feature heavily on this album, both in lyrics and the various videos like Lonely in Your Nightmare, LOL. Oh, the 80s. <laughs> that <laughs> so is that's a it. really sweet story. I love that yeah. she shared that. Yeah, yeah, it is. So I'm a How Music Works guy and often gets get caught up in all the nuts and bolts, like theory and context, but... Music might be the most personal, specific art form there is, and it's good to be reminded that sometimes there's just something about a song that hits you. Uh, so thanks, Maria. And part of why I named this show Discord and Rhyme is because I knew you would think it's cool. <laughs> thanks, Maria. Thanks, Maria. That's all I have on the song. Yeah, this one, this is my favorite song on the album. It's the one that has stuck with me the longest because something like Hungry Like the Wolf is is cheesy and a little cliched. It's great, but it doesn't, because it has so many pop culture associations with me, it doesn't land the same way. But this one, I feel like in the core of my soul. Mm. And I remember being at a party at, again, AWP, Chicago, 2009, my friend Matthew. And it wasn't that this song was playing. I think we had been listening to it in the car or something. And there's something about my friend Matthew that at that point, I felt like I had known him for my whole life and we'd really only known each other at that point like six months but so that line i don't remember quite how i met you wasn't long ago like really hits me Hmm. in that and i just get a picture of sun in your eyes the waves in your hair and because we we met during the summer semester at at stone coast so that line always just reminds me so much of him and to me, this song sounds exactly like what falling in love feels like. And obviously, I wasn't like falling in love with him. But that feeling you get when you meet someone for the first time and you're like sort of obsessed with them. Because you're like, this is a new person and I want to spend every minute of my day just like getting to know them. Mm-hmm. And he's a really fascinating, wonderful person. But this song just always makes me think of like those first couple months when we were hanging out. And it ends up centered around a party where this song wasn't even playing. Wow. <laughs> wow. I I just, I am so happy that I got to hear both of these really personal and meaningful stories about this song that one by I proxy. didn't really think was that special. <laughs> Which I feel kind of bad about now. Oh, no, no. It's a, I mean, I didn't really have much to say about this song, so I outsourced it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But, I mean, I do really like the little bits of guitar on this one. At least I think that's a guitar. It's kind of hard to tell on this album if anything is real. But, I mean, it's not LeBon's best vocal performance. I feel like he's stretching a little beyond his range in the chorus. It makes him sound a little thin, a little strained. But his voice always has a really lovely color and texture to me, even when he's not at his best. So this is a perfectly fine song. But, you know, I, I didn't think that much of it. Until I heard how much it means to Libby and Maria, and that kind of <laughs> elevated it in my thoughts as well, just because I really, really love hearing stories like that. Yeah. Musically, the the chorus sounds almost like you're falling backward, like trust fall kind of hmm. way. Mm-hmm. But it also makes me think just the the rush of the last line in the chorus 
it makes me think of committing a heist. <laughs> so I had this is like about two burglars that fall in love. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's it's a heist. It's love. It's maybe again that that sparkles. And yeah, you nailed it on that baseline. It's just iconic. All right. Well, Phil, what kind of beautiful emotional story do you have for us about Last Chance on the Stairway? None particularly. <laughs> I think it's a catchy, fun song. I think the bass line is the exact same as the one from Rio with a couple of notes changed, hmm. which um, I think is kind of one of the flaws of this album in general. It's clearly a more commercial move after their debut. They found a couple of tricks that worked. Like hmm. these kind of very rubbery kind of bass lines, and they use them a lot. So the same basic style of bass shows up over and over and over again. So basically every part of this song sounds like something else that's on the album. That said, I still think it's a very good song. It's got a great melody. It's got a nice arrangement. It has a completely out of left field, I think, vibraphone solo. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. which I definitely would not see coming on an album like this, which I think is a real cool touch. So I think it simultaneously demonstrates the limitations of their approach on this album while still being a very good song. See, what you see is (laughs) as limitations and I find to be thematic patterning, like that ability to tie it all together. So Mm -hmm. to make it sound like one whole piece as opposed to a series of singles. Right. That makes sense. Just different ways of listening to it. Yeah, definitely. Well, then let's move on to track eight, Save a Prayer, and see what interesting ways there are of listening to that. So similar to Janet Jackson's Control, the final two tracks of Rio are the Quiet Storm section. And this is where I want to talk a little bit about Duran Duran's image, because when I think teeny bopper boy band ballad, I think quit playing games with my heart or End of the Road or you plus me equals us calculus. I don't picture anything as moody, layered or intricately arranged as 
freaking save a prayer. And that's not a knock on the very real craft of pop songwriters like Max Martin, but Duran Duran didn't actively seek out this image. The British music press pretty much stamped them with it. Basically, they second, they hit it big. Um, so like rock critics were really starting to go nuts with genre labels at this point, and the new romantic angle just made for good copy and pinups. And just EMI would really play up the jet setting Playboy image. Like he, they would have them give press conferences in front of expensive boats they didn't own or know how to sail. Like Simon yeah. Le Bon would say uh, in one interview, he said, "Like the only time we're on a boat is for these things." <laughs> oh, jeez. Which I mean, yeah. I, I guess it sold some records at the time, but in the future, it actively repelled people like me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because uh, it's both fascinating and sad. And reading about them, you get a good picture of the early 80s music scene when, like, the biggest pop music was really starting to go global. Like, once a band got big, they get, they got put into this box and had to go on, like, the mm-hmm. big press tours and stuff. Uh, I mean, not like that wasn't the case before, but it was really just exploding in the 80s. Uh, anyway, as for Save a Prayer itself, it, you often hear it lumped in with Hungry Like the Wolf and Rio because it has another very lavish video we'll talk about later. But um, I personally never heard it on the radio or in the wild ever, I think. And now that my friend made that comment about the songs on the album feeling sort of like drapes, I can really hear it here, especially those like sort of bendy synth strings, which uh, which Nick Rhodes made using a synth plugin called a bender which runs on alcohol. <laughs> so the lyrics are definitive Le bon, especially some people call it a one night stand, but we can call it paradise. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh boy. Uh-huh. What a charmer. Yeah. And Le bon says that he treats music as like kind of a pole to swing around by which I figure he means a maypole, but interpret that as you will. <laughs> uh, so sometimes you get the sense that he like tossed out the first thought that occurs to him. And sometimes it's great. And sometimes it's ridiculous. I don't know. I love Simon Le bon. <laughs> This one I never listened to because it guts me. It just makes me feel mm. too deeply sad. It just it because it and it's that line uh and you wanted to dance so I ask you to dance but fear is in your soul. It just it, this whole song really bums me out and I've never had an affair. I've never had a one night stand so like I don't know what that's like, but I sort of am living it vicariously through this and it does not feel good hmm. so i'm a pass on that unless <laughs> unless walton goggins like gets my number i don't know maybe <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll make some some arrangements and throw my duran duran fear of affairs out the window but uh no this song it just it has that slow sink it's like like swallowing concrete and it just starts to solidify in your gut hmm I actually do remember this one from the radio. I'm sure I've heard it out in the wild, but it's definitely one of the lesser played Duran Duran hits, Uh, which is kind of a shame. I love this one. I think that opening synth line is just gorgeous. And I love the chord progression through the whole thing. And it's dark and it's a little mysterious and it's just on the verge of being sludgy. But then you get that high harmony in the chorus and the relatively bright synths that keep it from tipping over the edge. And what are those little wiggly noises that kind of sound like record scratches? I love that. (laughs) So this one, it's not one of my favorite songs on the album. Y'all talked about the lyrics about it, which I've mentioned before. I barely even know what the lyrics to this are. Yeah, I don't pay attention to them either. It's similar to some of the other songs on the album. They've clearly slowed it down here. It's a good song. I just don't have a ton to say about it. I feel like it's a little long. I feel like it could lose a couple of minutes because it goes on for nearly six minutes. 
and I don't maintain interest for the whole six minutes because I feel like it'd say everything it says in four. But generally, this is a song that I really like Last Chance on the Stairway, and I really like the next song. So this just kind of feels like an interlude between the two. Should I talk about the video? Yes, talk about the video. It, it is the last of the bunch that was filmed in Sri Lanka, though. It's probably the most cinematically advanced of any of them, for what that's worth, with uh, nice warm colors and some good shot compositions. Uh, but it's still mostly like Laban slowly walking around and singing with like a glazed look on his face. And as for all the shots of native Sri Lankans dancing on the beach, all I have to add is this quote from John Taylor in 1982 Ugh. about the video. It's all got religious overtones, Buddhist temples, processions. Great. In one scene, we had about 125 extras and we just paid them a ball point pen each and they think it's great slave labor wow end quote keep in mind that he was 22 before you cancel him though uh so also roger taylor fell off an elephant drunk into a pool of elephant urine and came down with dysentery later on when they were touring in australia this video was a fun time (laughs) wow yikes yeah, so just think of that when you get all moody about this song. It's so like sad and beautiful. Like, yeah, somebody fell off an elephant into elephant pee. All right. Elephant piss. <laughs> okay. Track nine is The Chauffeur. The Chauffeur. Elephant piss was the original working title for King Crimson's <laughs> Elephant Talk before they decided that, eh, maybe not. <laughs> Chauffeur was the last track recorded for Rio, but actually the first written, because uh, it was originally a poem Simon LeBon wrote long before he joined the band. Probably to some girl that he was trying to bang. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Uh, and it's a doozy, definitely the cult hit of the band's catalog. I-, I used to think that it sounded truly like nothing else, but that happens a lot with the first music you ever hear. Uh, and this is another song where the band is channeling Roxy music, especially something like, say, like in every dream home a heartache or something just slow and creepy that they did this is a really cool mixture of sounds almost trip hoppy in a way uh, it, it was originally written as acoustic uh, but nick rhodes then like built it into an electronic track using a roland tr808 aka the drum machine that is to hip-hop what the fender stratocaster guitar is to rock and roll duran duran our street it's 
Uh, so that creepy synth riff is played through a sequencer with Rhodes layering some piano underneath and then Roger Taylor coming in on live drums in the middle. And it sounds really cool. Uh, so that flute sound you hear is an ocarina, though since the band neither travels through time nor summons their horse, I have to assume they're playing it wrong. So obviously. <laughs> Make it nighttime. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I guess I wasn't looking outside. <laughs> Does it awaken the windfish, maybe? <laughs> oh, yeah. It might be Link's Awakening. <laughs> So I love the show for, but my primary association with it now is actually the uh, the 2010 Noah Baumbach movie Greenberg, which it uh, plays a part in. Uh, ben Stiller's titular character is at a house party doing coke with his niece's college age friends, uh, and he gets really really pissed off when they turn off this song and put on corn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I agree in spirit, but what's funny about it is that like Ben Stiller's character is like the kind of jackass who would put on the chauffeur at a party and expect everybody to get down to it. <laughs> well, apparently he's also the kind of jackass who does coke with his niece's friends. Yeah. Well, it, it's more like the house party is happening at his house and his niece has brought his, her friends over. That's not any better. Well, what kind of jackass puts on corn at a house party? Yeah. He's not a he's not a good person. Yeah, that's a good point, Phil. <laughs> I hope it's like shoots and ladders. S-H-O-O-T-S and ladders, where they just <laughs> sing a bunch of nursery rhymes, because that's going to get any party banging. Oh, well, yeah. Mm. Yeah, this one, people get really, really horny for it. This one does nothing for me. Like, absolutely. Honestly, I turn off the album after uh, Last Chance on the Stairway anyway, so this one, I, I got nothing. I love this song. <laughs> like, so if I had to pick a favorite Duran Duran song, it would probably be Hungry Like the Wolf, just because it's such an obvious pop classic. But this is not far behind. And depending on what day you pick, this might be my favorite Duran Duran song. And I've pretty much heard all the Duran Duran songs. I just really, really like this one. It's got an incredibly memorable chorus. I just love, you know, the arrangement that comes out and how it builds under it it actually has some like really great lyrics that i actually notice for once on this album i love the way uh simon laban sings about the droning engine throbs in time with your beating heart you get that great like build that goes from every verse to the next verse it's got that awesome like instrumental closing and also I mentioned a couple songs ago, like how this album has a bit of a uniformity problem where a lot of the songs have very similar arrangements, but this completely breaks out of that and sounds like nothing else on the record. That is fair. And I just think this is an A plus song. I, I pull this album out just to listen to this song frequently. You know, I can, I, I, okay. (laughs) I see what you mean. And I see why people would like, you know, the the various elements in the song. But I'm I'm on team Libby with this, except that I think I'm going a little bit further. It's not that it does nothing for me. I find this song relentlessly annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready for anything after Tempest Fugit, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I've built myself a reputation, haven't I? Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it's it's a really good thing. This is the last song, which makes it very, very easy to skip. It's I I do find this popping up in my head for no apparent reason fairly frequently. Like it really is an earworm, but not in a way that I find at all enjoyable. And 
I did find a Deftones cover of this. Which but sucks. I don't like that either. It's it's just as annoying, but with different instruments. It's funny because when you say the chauffeur, in my head, it's like a substitution. And instead, I think of the Susie and the Banshees cover of Iggy Pop's The Passenger. Hmm. Like, if I hadn't just listened to this album, huh. I would not be able to, like, repeat it back to you. That's how little this song means to me. And I can also tell you that outside of this podcast, I have some IRL friends who really like Duran Duran, and they are united in their opinion that The Chauffeur is the best song they ever did. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a fan favorite. I mean, I can see why uh, why both of you aren't into it. It's uh, Well, to me, it sounds like... It, it sounds kind of like DJ music. Like they throw like so many like different like just elements together. It it, it really like sounds ahead of its time, and that's kind of like what I get out of it. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I I get it though. Like I don't know. I've referred to some songs as like sculpture like to be appreciated rather than you know to be enjoyed, and I can totally see this song coming off that yeah, way. Yeah, that's, there you that's go. fair. And that's that makes the, sense. That's the kind of music that I have a tendency to enjoy. So. Mm-hmm. So, Rich, does this have a music video? Oh, God. It does, yeah. And now it's time for what we all want from any holiday episode, hardcore nudity. Actually, it's pretty tame, but this video attracted a bit of controversy. Uh, It was directed by Ian Emmis, who has no connection to Highlander that I know of. (laughs) Sucker. But he was animator on a bunch of Pink Floyd projects. Uh, So it's a pretty decent video, actually, with classy black and white cinematography and an actual story um, about a chauffeur who ferries two women to an empty parking deck to have a sensual dance together. Um, and then the chauffeur gets out, takes off her cap and outfit, and turns out to be dancer Perry Lister, who does a topless dance inspired by the 1974 film The Night Porter, which features a topless Charlotte Rampling dancing for Nazis while wearing a man's trousers, suspenders, and an SS uniform cap. Yep, this band is for teeny boppers. Huh. I did actually watch this video and it's weird. Oh, well, if you want to see real male gazy, uh, watch the video for uh, girls on film. The real video, not the anime one that I saw. (laughs) (laughs) It's. Yeah, no, I've seen it. I'm trying to find the most polite way I can find to say nauseatingly misogynistic, but I think I'm just going to leave it right there. Okay. The, yeah, the show the chauffeur is like art film male gaze, and yeah. girls on film is like porn male gaze. Yeah, it's that sort of awards for good boys, mm-hmm. like artsy. Like, oh, it's okay. Like, I understand women because yeah. I'm a man. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm gonna film this in black and white and give her a classy hat, and that makes it <laughs> art, right? Girls on film. The video is kind of going for that. But they're less good at hiding what the true intent is. Oh, oh boy. Although I guess I can, in a way, like, you know, 22-year-old male horniness. Like, at least, I don't know. There's At least it's consistent. I mean, like, the video for uh, Hungry Like the Wolf is just Indiana Jones, but horny. Yeah. I mean, like, at least they're, it's just we are making albums so that we can get girls. Like, I kind of respect that. I respect the bald-facedness of it. Yeah, they're pretty transparent. Yeah, like, we're sweaty and we like to fuck. (laughs) Who doesn't? There's a lot of silk scarves involved and we have ruffled shirts. We're Duran Duran motherfuckers. We're sweaty and we like (laughs) to fuck. Colon, the rock and roll story. (laughs) 
All right. Well, I think that about does it for Rio. Rich, what are your final <laughs> thoughts on this album? Well, so when we were first shopping around like the name Discord and Rhyme as a podcast name, uh, we got a few comments here and there to which I say, bah humbug. There's a vein of snobbery in music journalism that values what's cool over the actual content and form of music. And let me tell you, I read some truly vapid, worthless music writing from major publications in the early 80s in the course of researching this episode. It was just awful. It was the worst. Yeah. The exception is Pet Shop Boys' Neil Tennant, who followed them around for a week for Smash Hits in 1983 and wrote a delightful profile of them with a bare minimum of snark. But everything Neil Tennant does is great. He's delightful. Yeah, but if you focus on what Rio actually is, it's as immaculately crafted and as much a piece of the world as any rock classic you can name. And I hope I've shown that with this episode. Uh, so from Discord and Rhyme, happy holidays and joy to the ordinary world. Which is what we almost called last year's holiday episode, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of rock snobbery, um, while researching this episode, Rich found an interview with Simon LeBon where he implied that Duran Duran got a lot of comparisons to the Moody Blues. And of course, I flung myself straight down that rabbit hole. Looking for more details. And that does seem to have happened, you know, usually unfavorably. Uh, Because in the early 80s, the common wisdom was that the Moody Blues were the most boring and pretentious and stupid band ever. And it kind of seems like Duran Duran fell on that same sword a while later. And Rio came out right between the Moody Blues albums Long Distance Voyager and The Present, both of which sound reasonably similar to this, at least production-wise, and are both excellent, although nobody wanted to admit that at the time. And I even found this quote from Entertainment Weekly from 1993 referring to Duran Duran's then most recent self-titled album, uh, where they said, like all Duran's albums, this one is poured thick with gloppy production effects, rattling dance beats, pumped up bass to cover for the tendency of its pop melodies to be as flat as their recent sales. Even Ordinary World sounds like a Moody Blues ballad with a dented hook. Which is just a bizarre review because yes, it is. the second Duran Duran self-titled album known by fans as The Wedding Album does not really sound like earlier Duran Duran albums. It's a pretty clean break. Yeah. So so what I'm saying here is that professional music critics are idiots and <laughs> Rio is terrific, uh, which I, I hope we've made a good case for here. And it deserves just as much respect as any other rock classic. It's so good. Critics are dumb. Yeah, it's a very good album. I still don't think it's the best Duran Duran album because I still carry a place in my heart for the self-titled debut, which is a little bit raw, and I kind of like the rawness. They'd really refined things on Rio, which, well, depending on your taste, it's either good or bad. It's a much cleaner, more well-produced album. The pop hooks are shinier. They've really figured out what they do well. But to me, the cost for that is a little bit more uniformity here. The songs sound a little bit more the same than they do on the debut. But that's not really a problem when the writing is still as extremely sharp as it is here. The writing on this is very good. All the songs are very good. Even the songs Mm -hmm. that I kind of poo-pooed a little bit, like Save a Prayer, they're still good songs. They just stand out a little bit less to me. And you get tons of pop classics on this, like the title track and Hungry Like the Wolf. 
and you get The Chauffeur, which I think is an all-time rock classic and one of my favorite rock songs ever. So Yeah. So yeah, definitely get this record. <laughs> but don't stop here. Don't just get this or a Duran Duran's Greatest Hits album. They're an interesting band with a lot of treasures to discover, so don't write them off as the Rio band and say, ah, this is all I need. Definitely, they are a band worth checking out in more depth. Libby, what are your thoughts about Rio? It's been nice coming back to this album because I had listened to it in such a concentrated way for such a short amount of time. I drifted away from that uh, as I reignited, for instance, my love of Steely Dan, which came right after my Duran Duran phase and never went away. But <laughs> listening to it in full again and recognizing the patterns and giving it sort of a much deeper listen beyond my personal associations with things like Hungry Like the Wolf and uh, Last Chance on the Stairway was educational in a lot of ways. And and again, listening to all of you talk about how it was put together and exactly why it works uh, it really deepened my appreciation for it. So I, I always appreciate coming on here and, uh, and listening to you guys uh, talk about an album. Well, we really appreciate you coming on here and talking about this album with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we might be talking about Steely Dan before too long. Yeah, I hope so. You better. Stay tuned. <laughs> so, Rich, for all the people out here who are saying, dang, Duran Duran rules. What else do I need to hear? What do you got for them? Well, like Phil said, first you need to get the self-titled debut, which is colder and icier than Rio. And some of the arrangements are a little underbiked, as Paul Hollywood would say, uh, but it's still very good. Um, most editions come with the 1983 single, Is There Something I Should Know?, which is fun, but it sticks out like a sore thumb. You probably know it as, please, please tell me now. Oh, that song. I will say that the uh, modern Duran Duran reissues that came out finally corrected this and restored oh, yeah. the self-titled album to its original track listing and put, is there something I should know as a bonus track on Seven and the Ragged Tiger, which is where it actually chronologically belongs. So if you buy old CDs, there'll be a song from the era of Duran Duran's third album randomly slammed into the middle of their first album, where it's a good song, but why is it there? Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about Seven and the Ragged Tiger, which I don't quite recommend, but it's the place to go after this. So the sad thing about later Duran Duran, like a lot of 80s pop groups, is that once they hit it big, they like instantly bloated to arena size. And with a lot of money and a big, boring studio on a Caribbean island with nothing to do, um, like the next album they put out was Seven and the Ragged Tiger, which doesn't really have a sound other than expensive. Hmm. It sounds like cocaine. It's the sound of cocaine. So the prototypical example of this is their number one hit, The Reflex, which I bring up because the website Freaky Trigger wrote the perfect description of the song while talking about Oasis's single, Do You Know What I Mean? Uh, so I quote uh, about the Oasis song. It's nothing but a vent and away from its context, it feels bloated and beached. It's the 1990s equivalent of Duran Duran's The Reflex, a guaranteed massive empty smash built out of a band doing everything they did before, but louder and stupider. <laughs> I can't argue, but I love the reflex anyway. And Nile Rodgers managed to salvage the song with a remix. Uh, excuse me, I mean a remix, which is the version you always hear on the radio. Yeah, 
so the five-piece Duran lineup splintered after Seven and the Ragged Tiger, and, and for the rest of their career through the 90s, you should just pick up their 1998 compilation, Greatest, where you can hear songs like Notorious, Ordinary World, and Come Undone without having to deal with their parent albums, though I know, Phil, you're going to recommend one of those. Um, and you also get their 007 theme, of You to a Kill, um, and their oddball 1984 single, The Wild Boys, which shows that there was a time when all British bands were trying to be Frankie Goes to Hollywood. They tried to break us, looks like they'll try Finally, don't completely write off post-2000s Duran Duran. Uh, the classic lineup reunited for the solid 2004 album Astronaut. Um, and actually, both Phil and I stand for their 2007 album Red Carpet Massacre, where their label called in Timbaland and Justin Timberlake as pinch hitters. And as a result, critics were ready to pounce on them as trend hoppers like it was 1981 all over again. But it's kind of a pretty good album. It's a very solid I like album. It. Should I be surprised? reviews but if you're interested in it like i'm sure it's on spotify or whatever but you can go on amazon and people are selling it for like 25 cents so you know do yourself a favor and check that one out i'm the other person here i who has like a lot of duran duran albums definitely get the debut like rich said i like seven and the ragged tiger it's not as good as the debut or rio but Rich quoting that article was correct when he said it was a lot like Oasis's Be Here Now, but I like Be Here Now. (laughs) And similarly, I like Seven and the Ragged Tiger. Sure, it's bigger and dumber, but it's still a lot of fun. And I think uh, New Moon on Monday is actually one of my favorite Duran Duran songs. I like that one a lot, although obviously you can get that that one in any compilation, but I still think the whole album is worth it. Yeah, I picked up a picture disc of uh, The Reflex a little while ago, which is among my uh, my favorite of my uh, 12-inch singles. It's quite quite delightful. I was so fascinated by The Reflex as a teenager. I had no idea what to make of the song. Yeah, it's a lot. I- I've always thought The Reflex was really annoying. It is. It's so <laughs> annoying, but, it's I, but, annoying, but I love it. Just pile more into it. But other Duran Duran albums, I've mentioned before, their second self-titled album, their fans call it the wedding album because there's pictures of people getting married on the front cover. It's a complete mess. It's the band trying desperately to figure out what to do in the 90s. But it works real well. There's a lot of great songs on there. The song on it you probably know is Ordinary World, which is just an adult contemporary ballad. But what an adult contemporary ballad. I love Ordinary World. It's the favorite song of everybody's grocery store. And I would also (laughs) throw out a recommendation for their late period album, All You Need Is Now, which I think is very good. 
They've had a very strong late career resurgence until their most recent LP as of this recording, Paper Gods, which is pretty lame. Yeah, Paper Gods is not good. All you need is now. So you at very least should hear the song Girl Panic. Mark Ronson, who I quoted earlier, produced the album. And generally his whole shtick is like, you know, meticulous recreations of old sounds. And on this song, he recreates the classic Rio sound, but like, you know, in a 2010s context. Libby, what would you recommend? That's the thing is, I'm realizing that my Duran Duran knowledge is deeply lacking. So this has given me some places to to keep going. I should give the wedding album another listen. Uh, Ordinary World just bums me out so deeply that I've sort of avoided it. But um, I want to dig deeper into pop trash because I just love playing with uranium so, so much. Well, the fun thing about the wedding album is that if you don't like Ordinary World, there's really nothing else on the album that sounds like it because the band had no <laughs> idea what they were doing. So they just sprawled out in a million directions. Well, the real, the real banger on that one is Come Undone. Oh, I do. Oh, that no, that one bums me out even more. <laughs> oh, no. Well, as I mentioned before, I, um, I, I really don't know Duran Duran beyond the singles. But, you know, Libby, the way you feel about Steely Dan is the way I feel about the Moody Blues. <laughs> I do like the Moody Blues a lot. I need to get deeper into them because I, I know all the singles, but I love so every single one the of them. Moon. Oh my gosh, they're so good. So I mentioned early 80s Moody Blues before, and if you like Duran Duran, especially Rio, there's a pretty decent chance you're going to like those albums as well, especially the present. There's a song on that album called Meet Me Halfway that is just as good as anything here on Rio. There ain't no turning back I can see it in the distance Touch it through the night Driving into the light When I'm on my own When I'm all alone Won't you meet me halfway Won't you meet me halfway I would recommend that y'all watch The Shield if you haven't yet. <laughs> that would be that's my recommendation i go back all right well i think we have thoroughly discussed duran duran rich are you satisfied with your <laughs> holiday episode yes oh, and my mold wine yes the perfect accompaniment to any holiday occasion well i hope you will stick with us for our next episode which will be hosted by phil who's covering the grateful dead's album american beauty we will truck like the doodah man <laughs> I would expect nothing less. <laughs> Meeting you with a view to face to face. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy or stream Rio and other albums by Duran Duran at your local Sam Goody, as well as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, Amazon, and numerous other retailers. We have also made you a Spotify playlist that you can find linked on our website, discordpod.com, featuring the album, as well as every song we clip, reference, or make fun of. Follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at discordpod for news, updates, and other music stuff that strikes our fancy. Editing is by Rich, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio for production and original music. You can hear more of his music at otherleadingbrand.bandcamp.com. We will see you next album, and be ever wonderful. 